And turn in your Bibles to Amos chapter 3. Before we stand, I want to remind us a little bit about the structure of Amos. Uh, James mentioned a few of these things last week. Amos divides pretty nicely into three sections. So we are preaching through all nine chapters of Amos in three weeks. Uh, James looked at chapters one and two last week, which is the judgment against the nations surrounding Israel and then uh, judgment against Israel itself. Chapters three through six uh, we're going to see today are uh, more of God's judgment against his people and some uh, calls for them to seek God and return to God. And then in chapter seven through nine, more judgment, um, but also some visions. And uh, so we'll be looking at that next week. This is the largest section that we're going to have in Amos. This is the largest section that we're going to have as we go through the minor prophets for 32 weeks. Uh, it's going to probably take about 10 minutes uh, to read through this. So uh, I would invite you to stand. Uh, if you feel like you have to sit down at some point during this, that is totally fine. Uh, but I would invite you to stand now. I'm going to be reading Amos 3, 1 through 6, 14. If you have the Pew Bible, that is on page 765. I also want you to pay attention to the beginnings of the different sections here. Chapters 3, 4, and 5 all begin with the word, hear this word. And then chapter 5, 18, and 6, 1 begin with the phrase, woe. So there's going to be a, a lot of reminders to pay attention. So as we're going through this, pay attention to the details in these sections. Uh, I'm obviously not going to be able to cover all of this in great detail this morning. So please pay attention to the reading of God's word. Amos 3.1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt, and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria, and see the great, great tumults within her, and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you, when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, 
and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword. I carried away your horses and I made the stench of your camp go up in your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel. Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba for Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time for it is an evil time. Seek God and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and do good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. 
and the peace offerings of your fattened animals. I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikketh, your king, and Kion, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountains of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Or you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence? Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from, their midst of the, from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be first, the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if 10 men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him, who is in the innermost parts of the house? Is there anyone, is there still anyone with you? He shall say no. And he shall say, silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands and the great house shall be struck, struck down into fragments and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there without oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, have we not by our own strength captured Carnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Labo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, this is a challenging text. Not only is there a lot here, there is a lot of difficult things here, a lot of dark things here. But God, there is also hope. We ask that in the midst of this, you would Give us eyes to see. Help us to see the hope that we have in Christ. Help us to see how you have been so faithful to your people. God, to keep us, to restore us, to make us new. So God, give us ears to hear this morning what you would have from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for your patience. <laughs> uh, there is also an insert this week. Uh, if you are taking notes, we have an outline there. So that should be helpful. You can take a look at that. Well, perhaps you've had a conversation with someone where you have attempted to share your Christian faith with them, to tell them about what God has done in your life, to rejoice to try to convince them that putting their trust in Christ is better than the alternative. It's better than what they are currently choosing. Perhaps the response you have received was something like, yeah, that sounds good, but I'm really not a religious person. How would you respond to that? Maybe something like, oh, it's not about religion. It's about a relationship with Jesus. I've used that one before. Perhaps a better reply might be, 
You may not be a religious person, but you are a worshiper and you are a seeker. So tell me about that. Tell me about what you worship. Tell me about what you are seeking after. Because the truth is we are all worshipers and we are all seekers of something. Someone may only attend the church on Christmas and Easter or not at all, but it doesn't mean that they are not a worshiper. We worship what we love, whether it is God or any number of other things that we have allowed to take his place in our lives and to capture our affections. And we are all seekers of something. Again, we're either seeking after God or we are seeking after any number of things that this world tries to offer us. And the question that we need to wrestle with this morning is, what does it truly mean to seek God? What does it truly mean for us to seek God? The book of Amos addresses this question in a way that causes us as the people of God to sit up on the edge of our seats and listen. As we saw in chapters 1 and 2, there was a warning of judgment against the nations that surrounded Israel and then for them for their rejection of God and then for Israel and that the way that they had not sought after God in the way that they were supposed to. We're going to see particular attention paid to that today, to how Israel is in the crosshairs of God. And the church of Jesus Christ needs to hear these warnings today, just as the people did in the days of Amos, because we are prone to the same types of sins, the same type of wandering that they were. So here is the main idea for us from these chapters this morning. Again, we're going to be looking this, at this in three parts. If you have that outline, you can take a look at that. Kind of our big idea this morning is we must recognize our privileged status as the people of God, turn from empty worship and self-centered living back to God, and seek our sovereign and gracious Lord so that we might live. So let's dive into chapter three as we see that we must recognize our privileged status as the people of God. Amos begins here, the first of these three consecutive chapters, three, four, and five, with this phrase, hear this word. And we see very clearly here who the intended audience is. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. So this word is spoken against Israel. It's, they are called the, the whole family who God has brought up out of the land of Egypt. Now look at verse 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. We saw this throughout the book of Hosea, God telling his people to both recognize and remember who they are. Here, they are told that they are those who have been redeemed from slavery in Egypt. They are a privileged people. They are the family of God. O. Palmer Robertson calls this one of the central themes in the whole book of Hosea, right here in verse 2, that God has known them, that they are his special people, and that he will punish them for that. So this is the reason why God is going to punish them and judge them, because his people were not living out the reality of what they had been graciously given by God, mainly salvation, but also everything else that came along with that. Same truth is reflected by Jesus in Luke 12 when he is no doubt referring to the people of Israel who were not faithful and wise managers of God's household, but they were unprepared when the master returned. Remember what Jesus said there, everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This is a universal principle here that Jesus is applying to the people of Israel, to whom much is given, much will be demanded. It's also the reality that's seen in 1 Peter 4, 17, when Peter has just been encouraging Christians in the church to not be surprised, but to rejoice when they suffer for their faith in Christ. And he says, 
for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So we can see how these truths apply to us today. Jesus speaks of all that we have been graciously given as servants of our master. How are we doing at stewarding what has been given to us? Not just talking about money here. This isn't the pastor getting up, pleading for more money. But that's part of it, right? How are we using our finances? How are we using our time? How are we using the talents that God has given us? We've had a whole bunch of membership interviews over the last several weeks. One of the questions we ask moving forward, if you're going to join this church, how are you going to use the talents that God has given you? How are we going to use the gifts to serve God and to serve his people? We're not just here along for the ride, right? We're not here to just coast. That's what the people of Israel were doing. We're going to see that in the following chapters. They're just coasting along. And God says, get off your butts and do something, right? Get in the game. Stop sitting around and being selfish and living for yourselves. I've called you to myself. I've delivered you out of slavery to eat of eat out of Egypt. And now you're just sitting around acting like you don't have to do anything. How are we doing with that? How are we in do, how are we doing at embracing suffering like it talks about in Peter? Are we seeing God's fatherly discipline in our lives for what it truly is? We'll come back to this a little bit more in chapter four. But I hope that we can recognize just like the people of Israel, that we are a people who have been entrusted with much, especially at this time and this place in history. We live like kings and queens compared to, we live like kings and queens of old lived in our day. The amount of things we have, the amount of luxuries. So are we recognizing what we've been entrusted with? Are we trusting God with those things? Do we recognize that all that we have comes from the sovereign hand of God? That's the point of these rhetorical questions here in verses 3 through 6. The obvious answer to each one of these questions is, of course not. The two walk together unless they have agreed to meet. If you're in a park and you see two people walking, especially if they're holding hands, right? That wasn't just random, right? It wasn't just two people who are like, oh, hey, let's hold hands and walk and like, See what people think about it. That would never happen, right? Right? That's total craziness. So all these, all these rhetorical questions are getting to the answer, no, of course not. These things would never happen, especially the second half of verse 6. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Of course not. Wake up, Israel. Assyria is coming. The Lord is doing it. Verses 7 and 8 then reiterate that God gave authority to Amos to speak on behalf of the Lord. The one who roars like a lion, his prophetic authority comes from the Lord. And the message of the Lord is clearly seen in verses 13 through 15. We see again this word, hear. The promised punishment is for two things. The promised punishment in these verses is for two things in particular. The altars of Bethel. Verse 14, on that day, I will punish Israel for his transgressions. I will punish the altars of Bethel and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. This is referring to Israel's idolatrous worship, Bethel, uh, this place that they had set up, the golden calf, it will be cut off. And then uh, God, in verse 15, God will strike. It says he will strike the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish, the great houses shall come to an end. Again, this is a picture of unbelievable prosperity. Now, it doesn't mean that it's wrong for us, for Christians today, to have nice things. You often hear people misquote Paul and say that money is the root of all evil. I was literally sitting there on Friday doing sermon prep, and I got a message from a young man that I know, and he said, if money is the root of all evil, why does the church ask for money? And I said, well, it's not what the Bible says. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. If the church didn't ask for money, if the church didn't give money, we wouldn't have this place to meet. 
we wouldn't be able to pay pastors to serve the church, right? Like, and I said, every nonprofit organization asks for money because they need money to do things, right? Money isn't the issue. In any of the things we can talk about that relate to money, money itself isn't the issue. It's the love of money. It's a heart issue, ultimately, at the end of the day. So, doesn't mean that if you have a summer cottage that you go to on the lake in Wisconsin somewhere, or if you travel to Florida for the winter, that God is going to judge you and tear down those homes. He could, right? But that's not the point here. Again, the issue isn't the possession of these things, but it's the use of them. If you have that place and you say, I'm only ever going to use it by myself, I'm never going to invite people over, I'm never going to use this for God's glory, then I would say maybe watch out, right? But if you're generous with the things God has given you, if you say, this doesn't even belong to me anyways, right? This is all God's. That's the heart attitude that we should be seeking. We shouldn't be finding our significance. We shouldn't be seeking our identity and our purpose from these things, from the ease and the comfort that they afford us. Again, this isn't just a warning to those who have these things, though it's almost certainly a greater temptation for those who do. That's where Amos turns his sights in chapter four, as we see that we must turn from our empty worship and self-centered living back to God. Now, it's been said that God is an equal opportunity offender. He doesn't pull any punches. He offends across the board to everyone. Saw that in chapters one and two. He goes after the nations around Israel. You can imagine the people of Israel sitting there hearing Amos, right? Like, oh, yeah, go get them, God. Get these nations. And all of a sudden, whoop, the sights get turned on them, right? And it's like, uh-oh, look out. They're coming, God's coming for us too. We see that now within Israel. Chapter three is kind of this broad, like God's going after the whole nation. Now chapter four narrows the focus a little bit here. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. If you keep reading, you can probably figure out who this is talking about. It's talking about the women of Israel. God can say this, men, you know what I'm about to say? Yes, you, well, you can say this. You should not refer to the women in your life as cows of Oshkosh or whatever it might be, right? You do not want to do that. What's going on here with these women? You cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria, right? They're chilling on this mountain. They oppress the poor. They crush the needy. They say to their husbands, bring that we may drink. The cows of Bashan were known for being fat and therefore ideal for sacrifices. One commentator says the women's lives of indulgence have made them voluminous. Another word I would not recommend. Slothful and demanding. They will be called to account for this. Look at verse 2. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. When God swears by himself, he means it. He's going to do it. The day, behold, the days are coming upon you. The day of the Lord is coming. This is speaking of a future judgment. We're going to see this more in chapter 5. Now we see this imagery that they're going to be taken away with hooks. The last of you with fish hooks. This is an ancient Near Eastern practice of people being uh, taken away. There are some uh, pictures in, in caves that have been found of, of this practice where people, slaves are lined up and they actually have hooks through their jaws and they're all tied together. If you've ever been fishing and you've gone with a stringer and you have all those fish hooked up and they're hanging there and you're walking with them, that's kind of like a picture of this, right? This, this helpless people who are being carried away, they can't do anything for themselves. And that's what was coming in 722 BC when the Assyrians would come and they would capture Samaria. They would take the people away. God is warning them here and reminding them that he has been warning them. He has been trying to get their attention. 
This is very clear in verses 6 through 11. We see this five-fold repetition here. Anytime we see repetition in the Bible, we should pay attention. This five-fold repetition of things that God has done. Verse 6, it's famine. Their teeth are clean, meaning they, ha- mean they haven't been eating. There's a lack of bread. Verses 7 and 8, there is drought. God has withheld the rain. Verse 9, there is crop failure. They're struck with blight and mildew. Their gardens don't produce. Their trees don't produce. Their olive trees are devoured. Verse 10 is pestilence and war. The men are, young men are killed with the sword. And then verse 11 is total destruction like Sodom and Gomorrah. And what is the common refrain at the end of each one of those sections? Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. This was the plea all throughout Hosea from God to his people. Return to me. Come back to me, you wayward people. This is the major emphasis of the prophets. God is going to judge for sin, but he longs to be gracious and merciful. He longs to restore his people. So return to him. And if not, the consequences of these things in verses 6 through 11 will be felt, and reality will hit them hard. Look at verse 12. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. This is not some wimpy God like the nations around them were worshiping. It's not some little statue sitting on a shelf somewhere. This is the living God who is the sovereign Lord. Verse 13. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. This is God's control over all things. It says, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. This phrase may jump out to you if you were paying attention while we were reading all four chapters. The Lord, the God of hosts, it's used eight times in these four chapters. It means the God of heaven's armies. It's a military picture. It's a picture of God's power and his might. He's not messing around here. The Lord of hosts is dead serious. Will the people notice? Will they listen to the God of hosts? That's the question here. Again, we must turn from empty worship and self-centered living back to the living God. Now, chapter 4 had the women of Israel in its sights. Chapter 518 sets its sights on the men. We're going to skip 5, 1 through 17 for now. I'm going to come back to that. Look with me at 518. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. This is the first of three woes from here to the end of chapter 6. Verse 18 again. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? The message here is that you don't want God to show up because you don't like, you're not going to like what he's going to have to say. His message in verses 21 through 24 is that they've got it all backwards. While they were outwardly religious, see that in verses 21 to 23, their feasts, their assemblies, their sacrifices and offerings. While they were outwardly religious, they are neglecting the poor and the needy. They are like dried up riverbeds that have no life and vitality to those around them. But they are to pursue justice and righteousness. Look at verse 24. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. They are to pursue justice and righteousness like the Lord, their king, the one whose throne is built upon the foundation of justice 
and righteousness, Psalm 97.2. The reason that justice and righteousness are absent is very clear in the woes listed in chapter 6. Verse 1, woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. They have ease and security. Verse 4, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flocks and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. This imagery here, this picture of ease and security, it's like some high-end upscale karaoke bar, right? People are like chilling out on the couches, singing music, They're being brought all this fancy food and fancy drink being waited on hand and foot. This is a picture of Israel forsaking God and living in luxury. And they will get what is coming to them. Verse 7. Therefore, therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. That is reiterated throughout the rest of this chapter as they are again reminded, as we see in verse 12, how they have neglected justice and righteousness. Second half, verse 12, there says, but you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Wormwood was this bitter, disgusting fruit that nobody wanted to eat. One commentator called Amos 6 the darkest chapter in the, in the book. And some people have called Amos the darkest book in the Bible. This is not a pretty picture here. Thankfully, this is not where I'm going to end. I skipped over chapter 5, 1 through 17 because it is the center of the book. It is uh, actually physically the center and thematically it is the center of the book which I want us to focus on as we turn here to our last section. We must seek our sovereign and gracious Lord so that we might live. Now, to be sure, chapter 5, 1 through 17 isn't not dark. Verse 1 begins with another call to hear the word of the Lord. And this time we're told that it is a word of lamentation. Hear this word that I take up over you. In lamentation, O house of Israel. Look down at verse uh, 16 and 17. Talks about wailing and mourning. And those who are skilled in lamentation. We have an entire book in the Bible called Lamentations. It's a dark book, but there is hope in it. There are psalms of lament. And in all of them, except Psalm 88, which ends with no resolution, there is hope. So while we do lament, while we see these things, we have to be reminded that there is hope. So the question for us is, where is that hope? In the face of our own sin, in the face of a world that is opposed to God and his ways, where can we as the people of God find hope? I believe we see the answer in verses 4 through 15. And there's a repeated word here that clues us into the source of our hope. It's the ESV chapter heading for chapter 5. If you look at your heading there. Seek the Lord and live. Despite the promised judgment of verses 2 and 3, God tells his people in verse 4, Seek me and live. Don't seek Bethel, again, which is the location of the golden calf that King Jeroboam had set up, mentioned a lot throughout Hosea. Don't put your hope in these cities, Gilgal and Beersheba, which you see in in verse 5 and 6 there. Those inhabitants of the city are going to be taken away. They're going to be carried into exile. So don't put your hope in those things. Seek the Lord and live. 
verse 6. Now, I added the word sovereign to the sermon title, Seek the Sovereign Lord and Live, because the sovereignty of God is a major theme in Amos. We see it in verses 8 and 9. Again, God's control over nature, like we saw in chapter 4. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. The Lord is his name. Seek him and live. Look at the final call to seek the Lord in verses 14 and 15 and the promise that comes along with it. This is the answer to the question, where can we find hope? Verse 14, seek God and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. This imagery here is profound. The Lord of hosts has been used to refer to God, the God of heaven's armies, who was against them. Now it says, seek him that he may be with you. He's still the God of heaven's armies, right? But seek him that he may be with you and not against you. Hate evil and love good. Verse 15, establish justice in the gate. Meaning stop your self-centered living Chilling on your fancy couches with your fancy meat and your fancy drink in your fancy houses while the poor and needy all around you suffer. Now, it's way above my pay grade to stand up here and to compare and contrast economic policies and engagement on social justice issues. We do not live in a theocratic society like Israel did, and there are many levels of complication to this discussion. There are volumes and volumes of books written on this topic with Christians who love the Lord disagreeing on what this should look like. And I'm not here to to try to give you some pat answer that this is what it looks like in all circumstances. But we do know that Christians should care about justice. We should be those who show grace and mercy because we have been shown grace and mercy by our God. We should be generous and welcoming to those who are struggling. But we must always have the greatest good of the person we are trying to help in mind. If help is only ever external and material, then our helping falls short. The call in the first half of chapter of verse 15 is followed by a beautiful half, a beautiful truth in the second half. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Hope is always held out to the sinner. That despite our rebellion against God, despite our empty worship and our self-centered living, that God loves to show mercy and grace to lost sinners. He loves to welcome the prodigal home. James closed his sermon last week by taking us to Amos 9, 11 through 15. I'm going to do the same thing. Please turn to Amos chapter 9. Next week, we're going to be in Amos 7 through 9. So you're going to get part of Amos 9 three weeks in a row. But it is so good. This is the best part. Look with me at Amos 9, 11 through 15. In that day, remember, Israel, God saying, you don't want the day of the Lord. It's darkness. It's a picture of judgment. But it's not the only picture. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. 
The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. There are two things that I want us to see here. First, look at the language of prosperity in verses 13 through 15. This picture of of harvesting, of plenty, of verse 14, um, sorry, verse 13, the mountains will drip with wine, the hills shall flow with it. Verse 14, God will restore the fortunes. They shall rebuild the ruined cities. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. Their gardens will be fruitful. They will be planted in the land. This is a restoration to how things should have been. Rebuilt cities, flowing wine, fruitful gardens. These things are not bad things, right? These are things that the Lord desired for his people, but they were using themselves for selfish. They were using these things for selfish gain. This is no doubt a picture of the new heavens and the new earth where we will live with the Lord and he will be with us as he promised in 515. Eternal life in the presence of God is what we were made for. And this is the ultimate picture of prosperity that the good things in this life all are meant to point us forward to. Again, this is very fitting during this season of Advent as we look forward to the second coming of Christ. The second thing I want us to notice here is the repairing of the booth of David in verse 11. And this phrase in verse 12 that says, and all the nations who are called by my name. If you have the ESV, look at your footnote there for that the one uh, in verse 12, down at the bottom, it says the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, says that the remnant of mankind and all the nations who are called by my name may seek the Lord. This speaks of a future when God would gather people to himself from all the nations. If you are a Christian here today and not Jewish by ethnicity, this is a promise for you. This is a promise for us as the people of God, as Gentiles who have been gathered in. In the book of Acts, a debate arose about whether or not Gentiles, that is non-Jews, had to be circumcised in order to be saved. The apostles met in what is known as the Jerusalem Council to discuss this matter, and Peter stood up and he declared that the Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit and that they should not have any external requirements placed upon them he said to his fellow jews then we believe that they will that that we will be saved through the grace of our lord jesus just as they will and then james not james lima the apostle james he spoke and he quoted from amos chapter 9 verses 11 and 12 this is acts 15 16 and 17 and this is the septuagint translation so pay attention to this it says after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. The church of Jesus Christ is the rebuilt tent of David and Jesus himself is its head and its king. That's what Advent and Christmas season is all about. It's not just about looking back to a baby in a manger. It's about remembering that God invaded history as he promised he would. He sent his own son to live and then to die on a cross in the place of those who worship false gods and who serve themselves. And he sends out now those redeemed and reconciled people whom he has sovereignly called to call others to return to God and to seek God. Will we? Will we seek after God? Not just coming to church on Sunday morning, not just checking off the box and doing our daily devotionals, which we should do those, right? But will we seek him with our whole lives? Will we seek to honor him in the way we 
we use our stuff and the way we invest in relationships with people. Guys, this is hard work, right? This is not easy. It's not easy to read through these chapters in Amos and have these things staring us right in the face. But Jesus came for us. He came to rescue us from those selfish, empty things. He came to give us his spirit and to live inside of us so that we would seek after him, that we would go out and be generous and that we would share the gospel with people in the world, that people would see, just like we talked about with, with Ben and Becca in their baptism, right? That people would see you and say, what is different about you? We asked all the kids that in their membership interviews. If you're, you know, out, if you're out, like playing soccer or football or whatever you're doing, band concert, and someone comes up to you and says, like, I see, I see there's something different about you. There's different, the way you talk, the way you treat people, what's different about you? We asked them, what, it, what would you say? How would you explain to someone what it means to be a Christian? That should be visible in us, right? People should see something different. It's not because we're perfect, not because we got it all together. It's not because we're not cows of Bashan or whatever, right? Like we still struggle with those things. We, see, we still need to repent and turn to, to God. But he's gracious. He's been so gracious to us. So let's continue to seek after him. Let's continue to pursue him with our whole lives, not just compartmentalizing our faith, but with everything that we have. Let us pray. God, we do praise you for all that you've done in our lives, for how gracious and merciful you've been. We ask that you would help us as your people, God, to, to truly seek after you, to live lives in this world that people would see us and say, what is it? What is different about you? What, what is this hope that you have that I don't have? God, help us to turn away from the things in our lives that are displeasing to you. Help us to put those things to death, to lay them down at your feet, to surrender fully to you, God, knowing that, that your spirit is in us, that you are the one who gives us by your spirit the power to put to death the deeds of the flesh, and that it is not in ourselves. So God, send us out to be your ambassadors, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we close with the doxology. Mm, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.